giving them some principles and talking about being sensitive to other people's feelings. And in the last section that we talked about last week as we read through it, he, he talked about the necessity to have discipline, self-control, to, to not just do everything because you're allowed to do it, but actually put some restraint and control on your life for, for the good of everyone. And so we saw that section on discipline, and now we come to chapter 10. And he now changes gears a little bit, still kind of on the same theme, but now what he wants to do is to address them concerning what you need to learn from history. It's been said by many people that if you don't learn from history, you're, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes of history. He takes them through some of the events in the history of Israel and then draws a parallel to their day and It'll also give us a parallel to our day as well. So some valuable lessons from history. Now, most of the people in Corinth weren't Jewish, and so most of them didn't grow up hearing the Jewish Bible stories and the things that had happened in what we call the Old Testament. But even those who were Gentiles, when Paul ministered there, the only Bible he had was the Old Testament, and so he had no doubt shared some of these stories with them. Some of them were Jewish and know these stories, knew these stories very well. But he starts off by saying in verse 1, chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now this sounds a little funny as he illustrates it, but what he's trying to say is, remember those Jewish people who came out of captivity? They were, they were slaves in Egypt. And Moses led them forth out of captivity. And miraculously allowed them to cross the Red Sea and then behind them destroyed the armies of the Pharaoh so that they could escape into the wilderness. And he said they were led by that cloud that was a picture of the Holy Spirit, the cloud that protected them in the daytime. At night turned into more of a fire that kept them warm. And it led them across the desert and led them in the wilderness. He's saying, and then he also says, you ate that spiritual food, that is manna, when God gave them bread that fell from heaven so that they would be able to eat and not starve in the desert. He said, God also gave them that spiritual drink, which was the water that God provided for them on at least two different occasions, when water came forth miraculously from the rock so that they would be able to drink and not die of thirst. He, he says the rock was Christ. It doesn't mean literally the rock is Christ, but he said that was all a picture of what, would later, what you would later learn was connected to what Jesus Christ would do for us. Remember the, the uh, time when Moses struck the rock. It was designed as a picture of Jesus because one day Jesus would be stricken on the cross 
pay the penalty for our sins and provide for us that living water. But remember what happened with Moses. God told him the next time, just speak to the rock and water will come forth. But Moses was in a bad mood and he was mad at the people. And so again, he whacked the rock with the stick. And God was really upset because he said, man, that rock was a picture of Jesus. And now you messed up the whole lesson because Jesus won't have to be stricken twice. He'll die once. And after that, all you have to do is ask him, speak to him, and he'll forgive your sins. He doesn't have to be sacrificed again. So it was all a picture of the reality that later would be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, what he's trying to establish here is you guys today aren't that much different than those people back then. In the same way that for you, you were delivered from the slavery of sin. They were delivered from the slavery of Egypt. In the same way that when you gave your life to Jesus Christ and then later as a token to represent that, you were baptized, in the same way they passed through the water of the Red Sea, showing that you're really free, you really made it out. In the same way that you eat that bread and drink the cup that we call communion, in the same way, they drank what was provided and ate what was provided. And what they ate and drank was a picture of what Jesus would ultimately give. And now what you do is a picture of what he has already done. And so he's saying there are huge parallels between their experience in the wilderness and your experience. But here's the point. He said, as we read on, he says, but, verse 5, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Two million people left Egypt, set free from the slavery that they had been completely chained to. Two million people passed out of Egypt across the Red Sea, heading toward the Promised Land. But how many of those two million people who left Egypt actually ever got to enter the promised land? Really, only two of them, Joshua and Caleb. A total of, well, the other spies got to go in spying it out and then left, but only two of the spies said, I think we can do this. And as a result, they were the only ones who really fulfilled the promise. And so what Paul is saying here is, remember, not everyone, in fact, almost everyone who was set free from slavery ended up dying in the wilderness. And so he's saying there's a warning to you that just because you've experienced certain things and you've been baptized and you've taken communion, there's still a danger, there's still a hazard that lies out there for you. He says, now these things, verse 6, became our examples. The Greek word there is the word tupai, which is the word from which we get types. Whenever you hear people say, well, the rock was a type of Christ, it means it's a picture, an example, or a type. These things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He said, what happened to these guys presents a great lesson for us guys for us to consider. 
because they were destroyed by lust. They were destroyed by what they wanted. They were destroyed by their own temptation that led them to sin, that led them to fail, that caused them ultimately to die. And so he said, there's a lesson here for all of us. Because what happened to them, they aren't that much different than you are, and you better pay attention and learn a lesson from them so that you don't end up, the implication is, dead in the wilderness, missing out on the promises that God has given you. So now he goes on after saying that their bodies were scattered in the wilderness in verse 5, and it's an example for us so we don't lust. Now he gives a few concrete examples of some of the people who died in the wilderness and why they did. Verse 7 He says, do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a quote from Exodus chapter 32. It's talking about that time when they were in the wilderness and Moses went up into Mount Sinai to receive the law. If you haven't read it in the Bible, you've probably seen the movie. And as he was up in the mountain getting the commandments, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, the children of Israel were down at the bottom of the mountain, and they were missing Egypt. And they said, you know, man, back in Egypt, we really enjoyed worshiping the golden calf. It was a part of the Egyptian religion. They go, let's, we got a bunch of gold here. Who knows, Moses may not even come back. He might have died up in the mountain. So build us a golden calf. So Aaron did build them a golden calf, and they were dancing around it and celebrating. It says first they sat down and had a ceremonial meal, and then they got up to play. They got up to dance and to celebrate. And it was while that was going on that God told Moses, you better get back down the mountain, Moses. And as Moses came down the mountain, he saw what he couldn't believe. That while he's up there communing with God, here's his brother has made this golden calf, and they're all dancing around it and worshiping this idol. That which they got saved from, they were turning back to. He got so mad, he threw the Ten Commandments down and smashed them. And in the process of that, as he, well, Aaron came up with the greatest excuse ever. Aaron goes, what? He goes, uh, we just threw a bunch of gold in the fire and this calf came out. <laughs> One of the early, I mean, this was pre-Darwinian evolution. <laughs> it just happened, I don't know. Ended up 3,000 people died that day because of this idolatry. Now he goes on to say, verse 8, on, there, were another, there was another time when he said, don't let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Referring to an event that happened over in Numbers chapter 25. When they went into the promised land, the children of Israel were told not to intermingle and intermarry with some of the pagans. And one of the worst group of pagans was the Moabites. And they were told specifically, don't have anything to do with them, don't let your son date the Moabite girls, 
don't do it. Because the Moabites had a religion that was very enticing. Whereas most people for religion, they just kind of chant and, and kill some animals. The Moabites added sex appeal to the equation to where physical illicit relations were a part of their worship experience. And as a result, especially for the boys, it was an exciting religious opportunity. All of a sudden, boys that didn't want to go to church wanted to go to church now, but they wanted to go to the Moabite church. And so they became involved with these women and performing these these religious um, sexual rituals. And God was very upset. As it says here, 23,000 died in one day from a plague that God caused to come on them. Now, there are some people who will point this verse out and say, well, if you go back to Numbers 25, it says that 24,000 people died. And now this says 23,000. There's a contradiction in the Bible. It's kind of funny what people want to make a big deal about, but if you're really worried about the fact that Numbers says 24,000 and here it says 23,000, give you a couple things to think about in case somebody brings that up. If 24,000 people died, then isn't it also true that 23,000 people died? I mean, it's pretty hard to kill 24,000 people without first killing 23,000. So it could be as simple as that. It could be that he's just using round figures. It wasn't exactly. So if there was 23,497 You could round it up, you could round it down, 23,000 or 24,000. There's also the possibility that God killed 23,000 in one fell swoop, and then when he commanded the people to finish the job, that the Levites went and killed another 1,000, and and that's what, you know, he's talking about the initial 23,000 that died. At any rate, there there was a horrible catastrophe that resulted from them um, dating Moabites. <laughs> and so, as a result, he said, not only can you get in trouble from idolatry, but, man, can you get in trouble from fornication. Now, Paul goes on and says, nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted God, and were destroyed by serpents. That's a reference to what happened over in Numbers chapter 21. Children of Israel were complaining, nagging at God and at Moses and just going, I'm so sick of manna. I'm so sick of living in the desert. I'm so sick of this life. And they had done this ever since they had left Egypt. Oh, I want to go back to Egypt. I miss all the food in Egypt. Even as God was providing food and water for them, they were complaining and griping. So at one point, a plague came, and these poison asps came and were stinging people and killing them. And so it's making a reference to that. Now, at the time, God had Moses put a a serpent, a statue of a brass serpent on a pole. It's the same picture that you see now connected to the medical fields. And if someone was stung by one of these serpents, All they had to do was go to the door of their tent and look at the serpent that was on the pole, and they would be healed. They'd be fine. But a lot of the people didn't do that, and as a result, lots of people died because they were complaining. Verse 10 kind of continues that thought and says, Nor complain, as some of them also complained, 
and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's what happened with the fiery serpents, but it's also what happened throughout their journey in the wilderness. Ultimately, it's what caused them to not be able to enter the promised land because they didn't have faith to do what God was telling them to do. Instead, they were griping and whining about it. And so as a result of that complaining, Moses wasn't able to go into the land because he got so bugged at the people for complaining, it made him mad, and he complained and struck the rock again. So he was out. They all ended up, except for two guys, ended up dying in the wilderness as well. And all the kids survived, but the adults who were old enough to know better died in the wilderness. And so he says, let's not be complainers like them. Now, he goes on to say in verse 11, now all these things happened to them as types, as examples. And they were written and recorded for our admonition, so we could learn a lesson, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He said, these things happened, but they were recorded for our benefit. Here we are in the last days, and now we have this recorded so that we can learn those lessons. What lessons? The fact that temptation can lead to death. The fact that if you allow what your flesh tells you to do to be the guideline for how you live, it's going to cost you big time. And Paul would want the Christians to know, look, don't think because you've accepted the Lord. Don't think because you're going, hey, I'm part of the church, I'm you know, I'm in, that you are somehow immune from the destructive nature that temptation can have in your life. Temptation can lead to death. Temptation can lead, in the worst case, to you not experiencing what God wants to give you. It can cause your life to end as a total loss in the desert instead of as being blessed as God wants you to be blessed. Now, you look at it and go, I don't know. I mean, how much do these events really connect with us? Are we really having a problem with this? How about idolatry? Now, maybe we don't make little statues that we bow down to. Some people do. But most of us don't do that. But idolatry is simply worshiping something that's created rather than the one who created it. Idolatry is basically, at its core, materialism. It's just deciding that what's valuable to us are things rather than, than God. And so we start to worship things, and it's idolatry. And it's dangerous. It's a, it's a temptation that can really destroy us if we give in to it. We're not that much different. We haven't come all that far. Well, how about fornication, immorality sexually? It's a big issue today. As big as it is then, you might go, oh, I don't know, I don't even know any Moabite girls. But there are all kinds of people out there who are tempting us to do things that are wrong. And I see people's lives being destroyed every day from giving in to that lust, that temptation, getting involved with the wrong people and destroying 
of the life. It is still a real threat. And then how about complaining? Oh, nobody complains today, do they? This week is Thanksgiving. We set aside one day to be thankful. 364 days a year are griping days. And then what's going to happen on Thursday at Thanksgiving? This turkey's too dry. <laughs> this turkey's not cooked enough. What's with the canned yams? Can't anybody make a real yam nowadays? And then why do they pick these games to be on TV? These teams are all lousy. I mean, why, why can't they put the good teams on? And then how come my team is losing? They're playing terrible. What's going on? And, and then on the other side, how come all you guys can do is just watch TV? This is supposed to be a day of thanksgiving, and you guys, all you're doing is just laying around. You're not helping in the kitchen. We slave and... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll ease off on that. But the whole thing is, even on thanksgiving, we're complaining and we're griping. You know, there's not that much difference between us and them. Now as we read on, he says, Therefore, verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. He said, Don't be so ignorant as to look at those who have died in the wilderness in the past because they gave in to the temptation of idolatry and materialism. They gave in to the temptation of immorality sexually. They gave in to the temptation of griping and complaining. And don't think that you're different than they are. If you think you're not, be careful. Don't believe that you're so safe and secure that you can just do whatever you want and you'll be fine. See, all of these temptations affect all of us, as we're going to see in the next verse. But Paul is saying, this is a warning for all of you. This is a warning for all of us to consider. So let's receive it as such. And in verse 13, he wraps up this little discussion by saying, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. That's what he's been establishing. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. No temptation has taken you except what's common to man. The truth is, these three areas that destroyed the children of Israel are still threatening to destroy us. And you are a fool indeed, if you pretend like, oh, that's not a problem for me. That's not something I have to worry about. Hey, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. If you feel perfectly safe and secure, you could be in some serious danger of inflicting upon yourself the same kind of destruction that temptation can often lead to. But on the other hand, temptation doesn't have to destroy you. Temptation will do one of two things. It will either lead you to destruction and death, or temptation will lead you to escape and deliverance. See, God allows temptation to come upon us. He lets it happen. But he always, in his faithfulness, gives us a way to have the victory. 
a way of escape. The path is always there. You will be able to bear it. The temptation is never so strong that there's no way out. But God doesn't want us to be destroyed. God wants us to be delivered. He doesn't want us to lose. He wants us to win. But if that's going to happen, we have to understand the nature of temptation. But then we also have the decisions that we have to make in order to say no to that temptation and to do what's right instead of what we feel like doing. Because we get that insight that just because something feels good, it doesn't make it the right thing to do. Now let's think about the children of Israel. Can you understand why they might fall into idolatry? I mean, they had been they had grown up in a society that worshipped idols. And they looked at these things, and it had all sorts of great connotations to them. A lot of great memories when they would look at those idols. And, I mean, let's face it, you can see how people could fall into idolatry today. Because the physical world is what we see and touch and feel. It's like the most obvious things to us. And so when you talk about valuing God, who you can't see, it's a little easier to wrap your head around loving your new car. Because, I mean, there it is. It's there. Everyone in our society is valuing things. Everything that we're bombarded by is to sell us on the notion that somehow we are going to be satisfied if we get enough stuff. And so the temptation to idolatry is incredibly powerful for us, even as it was for them. And I can totally understand why the children of Israel would dabble in some idolatry. And I can totally understand how we do the same thing. It has a real hold on us. Now, how about sexual immorality? We have built into our bodies the capacity to want to do things, and then we're told not to do them. And yet everything within you, especially as you're younger, is just racing for you to want to do it. And it's understandable when people give in to that desire, completely understandable. Even as for them, they're out in the desert. You know, they're, they've gone through everything that they're going through, and then they're told, stay away from the Moabites. But man, you look at those Moabite chicks, and they were hot. And it's like, oh man, and they seem really religious. And for us today, it's like, hey, you're single you're struggling with that, wanting to be with somebody. But you know the Christian guys you meet? A bunch of losers. And here there's some really nice non oh, The only thing, they're perfect, except they just don't know Jesus. But, I mean, maybe I'll win them for the Lord. Maybe, then they'd really have it together. They have so much better line than other guys I know. You know, and guys are like, man, are you, you know, I'm faithfully walking with the Lord, and I'm not meeting any girls who are spiritual, who really care about things I care about. Man, when I was single, before I was walking with the Lord, it was, girls were throwing themselves at me. I, you know, I would say, I could have any girl I please. Now I realize I don't please any. And it's like, <laughs> what, what do you do? Are you just supposed to wait, and God's going to 
cause some you know mermaid to come out of the ocean and this is the, your long lost love or what's you know what's supposed to happen and I can totally understand where people come off when they go you know I'm going to link up with somebody who's a compromise but I got to be with somebody if you can't be with the one you love love the one you're with you know <laughs> and just make it happen I can understand where when someone's in a painful marriage and things aren't going well, and the spouse isn't treating them the way they're supposed to. And then here there's somebody at work that's just so sweet and nice and thoughtful and considerate. Maybe they even know God and they pray with you. And it's like, wow, that's really, it's tempting. It's hard to resist that just on the basis of because God says so. I completely understand why people give in to that temptation. But giving into that temptation will kill you. It'll destroy you, as it did them. How about complaining? Well, I can understand. I mean, the children of Israel, they're out in the desert. No, don't have a variety of food at all. Just this manna that's kind of boring. No path out, no way, no place to go. You can understand how they'd complain a little bit. I can understand how we complain. Things don't go our way. It's not a perfect world. It's a world that hurts. It's lame in so many ways. And so, yeah, it's completely understandable that we gripe and complain. We have plenty to complain about. But complaining will kill us like it did them. Why? Why is complaining a big deal? You think, wow, God's picking three big sins. And he's like, well, first thing, idolatry. Okay, I can see why God makes a big deal about that. And then fooling around with Moabite chicks, yeah, okay, I'll go for that. But complaining? Come on, that's all we have left. <laughs> I mean, if, if we resist the first two, complaining is, there's plenty of reasons to complain then. But it's the worst of the three. He puts it last. I'm convinced that it's the worst of the three. Why do I say that? What complaining is ultimately is it's the epitome of pride. It's the epitome of arrogance and selfishness. Because what I am saying when I complain is, God is ripping me off. If I am saying that my life isn't something that I'm content with, I'm saying, man, I deserve better than what I have. Do you really? Do I really deserve better than we have, only in my sick, delusional idea of how valuable I am. The truth is, I am so lucky to have what I have. I am so blessed beyond blessing with everything that I have. As soon as I complain, I am betraying that obvious pride that is in there. And pride is the mother of all sins. Pride is behind every other sin. The reason why you worship things is because you think you deserve them. The, the reason why you get involved in inappropriate relationships is because you think you deserve them. And it all flows forth from this feeling that I don't have what I ought to have. Why? Because of some delusion, a vision of grandeur that I have about myself that I deserve more than God has given me. But what a slap in the face to God when we complain. When we basically say to God, God, you rip me off. 
You haven't given me the spouse I deserve. You haven't given me the material things that I deserve. My life isn't going the way I deserve for it to go. God, I'm better than this. You're going to die in the wilderness with that kind of thinking. And it's just so offensive and so hurtful to God that we act like God doesn't know what we know. Or that somehow God doesn't appreciate how good we are. How deceptive. But it's understandable. I get it. I just understand also from experience that these temptations will destroy us. But God is faithful. I'm so glad that's in there. God is faithful, even when we aren't. And he always provides a way of escape. God is constantly sending out little warnings to you and to me of the destructive behavior that we are indulging in, and he's trying to help us to stop. Now you go, well, how about those Jews in the Old Testament? They didn't have much of a chance, did they? Well, if you read about what happened with the the, um, golden calf, when Moses came down and broke the law and he chewed the people out, before anyone died, Moses said, listen, it's time for you guys to decide. And I want to ask you, there's a line in the sand, who is on the Lord's side? The only guys that stepped across to say we're on the Lord's side were the Levites. And that's how the Levites became the Levites. That's why they were allowed to be the priests. Because they were the only ones who made that choice. But for everyone, those 3,000 people who died that day from idolatry, if they had only said, yeah, I want to be on the Lord's side, it was a way of escape. They could have got out of it. For the griping people who ended up having these, these bite, serpent bites that was killing them, all they had to do was get up off their cot and look out the window. At the, at the serpent that represented Jesus. As Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And it's true for us today. Oh, people who die in the wilderness, all they have to do is look at Jesus. Repent of their sins, receive forgiveness. The way of escape was there for them, and it is for us. And I'll tell you something. Every day, in a thousand different ways, God is trying to protect you and me from ourselves. He sends out little warnings. When it comes to idolatry, yes, we are prone to idolatry. We are prone to value things. But God is constantly sending us a message that says, don't do that. Sometimes the message looks like this. You get a brand new car. You're on your way home, park in a parking lot, and somebody dings it. And it's like, you just ruined my car. Well, maybe God's just going, you know, it's going to burn. It's not that. It's just a piece of metal. It's okay. Oh, no, it's my piece of metal, and it's so shiny. And it's so. And God's like ramming into it. Some people total their car, their God, so that God can go, here's a chance out. Here's a way of escape. Do we take it? When you look at that stack of bills... When you see that your credit card balance is maxed out and you can't make the minimum payment, and you see no way of digging out of the hole that you've buried yourself in, is God maybe giving you a way of escape? 
a wake-up call to say, I wonder if you didn't value material things so much, you wouldn't have got into this jam. It's never too late. There's a way of escape. There's a way to turn it around. You just have to wake up and realize what you're doing. There it is. The path, he's saying, are you going to live for things or are you going to live for me? There's a way of escape. When it comes to immorality, there are people who are trapped in immoral conduct, and God is throwing up roadblocks all along the way to try to warn you. You start getting involved in a relationship, and you know it's really not the best relationship for you, but hey, you know how those Moabite chicks look when they fix themselves up. And you go, I don't know, this isn't seeming right. Seems like we fight all the time. My friends don't like him or her. My parents don't approve, but, you know, I'm going to go for it. God's going, escape. Get out of there. Here's the off-ramp. Here's a perfect opportunity. Take it. Don't destroy yourself. We don't want to listen. So often, we continue to go. Guys that are struggling watch, looking at pornography on the internet, how many times does your computer break down and you just think, oh, these stinking computers. Oh, man, it hung again. I need to get a Macintosh so this doesn't happen. You know, and it's like, okay, I can either stop looking at what I'm looking at or I can hit control, alternate, delete, and try it again or buy a new computer. God's going, escape. Get out of there. Stop doing this. I'm trying to bail you out. I had a guy this morning after first service tell me a great story that's a perfect example of this, and I'll try not to betray his identity in case he doesn't want you to hear this, but he, he's a guy, single guy, he has a really nice motorcycle. And he, he was, hey, there, there are more single guys than one that have a motorcycle in our church. But he's sitting at a, he's sitting at a red light, and a good-looking Moabite chick pulls up next to him. <laughs> and, and she's like, she blows him a kiss. And he's like, oh. And then she's, she's talking to him. And he can't hear it, so he shuts off his motorcycle. And he goes, what? She goes, she goes man, that's a great-looking motorcycle. And he goes, it would look even better with you on the back. And she's going, I'll pull over right up ahead. You're on. And then he goes to start his motorcycle up. <laughs> Click. He's, he's never once had this motorcycle break down as long as he's had it. Now it won't start. And he's pushing this big motorcycle through the intersection. Took him an hour to get it started. You know, Miss Moabite's long gone. <laughs> but it's like, you know what God just did for you? Do you know how he gave you the path of escape? I talked to a girl after second service who said, you know, it's so funny. She goes, I, I quit smoking back when I became a Christian, but now I got back into it and I've really been feeling bad about it and like God wants me to quit. And she goes, I was so mad. Last night I ran out of cigarettes. And I, couldn't, I was mean to my kids. I was mad at everybody. And she goes, I realized I ran out of cigarettes because God wanted to give me an off-ramp. He wanted to say, here you go. Here's a way out of this. So many times in our lives, God gives the way of escape, and we don't take it. We don't allow it. Sometimes while we're in the middle of complaining, God causes some great blessing to happen in our lives. Something really good happens. 
And it's like, here's a way of escape. You can either stop and praise God, or there's always something else you can complain about if you want. God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. He will always give a way of escape. There's always a way out. He is putting up those roadblocks because he doesn't want us to destroy ourselves. And the roadblock ultimately is repentance. The roadblock ultimately is to go, I'm tired of just ruining my life. I don't want to end up as a corpse in the desert. I repent. I don't want to live for idolatry. I don't want to live for immorality. And I don't want to be a negative, griping, whining, prideful person who thinks he deserves better. These things destroyed a civilization. And I don't want them to destroy me any longer. There's a, there's a Jewish poem that they say, kind of a little thing that they say on, at the Passover. And the, it's, it's called the Dayenu. The, the father starts reciting this thing. And the gist of it is, God, Dayenu means it would have been enough. And they say, if you had led us out of Egypt and we never passed the, the Red Sea, Dayenu, it would have been enough. If you had led us across the Red Sea and the Egyptians hadn't drowned in the Red Sea, Dayenu, it would have been enough. If you had led us into the wilderness and never brought us to Mount Sinai, Dayenu. If you had brought us to Mount Sinai but never gave us the law, Dayenu, it would have been enough. If you had led us to the Jordan River but never into the Promised Land, it would have been enough. If you had led us across the Jordan River into the Promised Land but we never had all those victories, it would have been enough. At some point, the point is, hey, is it enough? How much do you think God really owes you? Well, to not see that will destroy you and everyone around you. But Paul said, you don't have to do that. He said, I'm telling you this story so you can wake up and not destroy your life. The lesson is clear. And if you think you don't need this lesson, you are truly deceived. We all need this lesson. We all need it constantly. The way of escape is there. We don't have to destroy ourselves. We don't have to die in the desert. Maybe you're somebody today who's never even given your life to Jesus Christ. Today is your off-ramp to the road that's going to kill you. You can give your life to him. He died for you. He'll give you a fresh start. It's time to do that. Take the way of escape. God is faithful. For many of us, we're being sucked into temptation that's destroying us. Sin that's absolutely ruining everything that God wants to do in our life. Today might be your way of escape. Time to repent. Time to come clean before God. And ask him to forgive you and be determined not to fall into the pattern that has destroyed plenty of people before you and will destroy plenty of people after you. Let's take the way of escape. God is faithful. He's good. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for the way of escape. 
How thankful we are for your son Jesus who paid the price for us to be forgiven. Lord, unless we're completely deceived, when we look at these stories, we do recognize ourselves and the things that we do that are hurting us, that are hurting you, that will destroy us ultimately. But God, we want to enter all the promises that you have for us. We want to escape those things that will destroy. For us, we don't want temptation to lead to death. We want temptation to lead to escape and victory. So help us to know individually, personally, specifically, what are you talking to us about today? And where is that way of escape? God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.